Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, on this lovely and great day, we ask that you will speak your word to our hearts and open our hearts to the glorious message of Jesus Christ for his name's sake. Amen. Well, it's a great joy to be with you. I wish you a very happy birthday or anniversary. I have happy memories of those days, long ago it seems, 20 years, friendship with Trevor and Val and so on, and so I'm glad to be here. John chapter 10, verse 10. It'll be useful if you have your Bible open, but it doesn't matter if you haven't got one. John chapter 10, verse 10, and we're going to look at one of the very greatest verses and sayings of Jesus. Now, actually, our sermon this morning is not going to even to be on a verse. It's going to be on a word, a word from this verse. I'll read it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So we're going to look at one great word from John's gospel, and that's the word life. It's a favorite word of John's. It comes more often in the Gospel of John than in any other writing of the New Testament. And all the Christians here, all those who are regular, those who know their Bible, will know those famous verses. My memory is not what it was, but I think I can quote them. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, verse 6. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11, 25. Uh, chapter 17, verse 13, can I remember that? This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And above all, this great verse here, I've come to give them life, and life abundantly. This is John's favorite word for salvation. Salvation means deliverance and rescue. So what have we been rescued from by life? We've been rescued from three things that you won't hear anything about in the general election. By the way, can you bear the next month? I'm not sure that I can. (laughs) But let me tell you that you won't hear anything about the real problems of the world and of personal life. The three greatest problems are spiritual death, when we live in God's world without any knowledge of him, physical death, when we face the future without any hope, and eternal death, when we live forever without any knowledge of the love of God or indeed of our fellow men. Those are the greatest, deepest, worst problems in our world and for every single person. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. I'm afraid the church doesn't often mention that last one, but it's a fact. God forbid that anybody in church this morning will suffer from eternal separation from God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And the rescue word in John's gospel is the word life. How many millions of people have found this life through this gospel of John? How many thousands of church plants going on today are a result of the message of life in this gospel of John? Now, characteristically, when John talks about life, he talks about eternal life, and eternal life means the life of the age to come. It has two aspects in John's Gospel, and I want to look at them both. 
The first is the future aspect, and I want you to turn, if you've got a Bible, it'll be a great help to me, to John chapter 20. At least you can check out that I'm telling you the truth, and uh, I've got my spectacles on. Chapter 20. These Bibles today are always in such small print. Chapter 20 uh, could have a good heading, Seeing is Believing. It's the story of the first Easter day. It's the story of a number of people, quite ordinary people, who saw Jesus alive again after that cruel death. So verse 8, for example, finally the other disciple, that's probably John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside the tomb. There it was empty with the grave clothes and nobody. And notice what it says, he saw and believed, seeing was believing. On to verse 18. Jesus meets with Mary Magdalene. It's a very touching interview. We can't go into it now. But Mary went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Of course, they think she's mad, I think, at first. But she had. And then was 20B. That's 20B. Jesus comes to the disciples through the closed door. He shows them his hands on his side. And the disciples are overwhelmed at this sight. And they are overjoyed when they saw the Lord, seeing was believing. Only one of them, of course, was not there. That's Thomas. He thought they were mad. He thought they'd seen a ghost. He thought they were hallucinating. So he said, I am jolly well not going to believe. I think you've seen a figure, perhaps, in your imagination. But I'm not going to believe, and I actually can see the nail marks in his hands. And unless I can just see that gaping wound in his side. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he turns to Thomas. It's a great moment, isn't it? Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says, as we all do this morning, my Lord and my God. But what did they actually see that Easter morning? Oh, he says, very easy. They saw their beloved Master and Lord alive again. Uh, They could hardly understand what it meant, but they'd seen that cruel cross, and now here he is back in this world alive. Well, let me tell you, they saw much, much more than that. Uh, A month or two ago, there was an obituary in the paper of a man called Jenkins, Bishop Jenkins of Durham, He caused quite a stir, uh, what, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago? We elders will remember, when he denied the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The actual words he used were pretty crude. He said, the bones of Jesus are still in the dust of Palestine. Uh, A few weeks later, York Minster was struck by lightning, and a lot of rather foolish people said, of course, that's God's judgment on him. I don't think the Lord really cared about the Bishop of Durham at all, really. Why should he worry? (laughs) Nor do I think there was any great stir, because people were used to church leaders who said they didn't believe. I was talking to the late John Stott. Many will have many happy memories of that remarkable man. He was looking rather sad, and he said these words, Dick, 
What the bishop is denying is not simply the resurrection. He is denying the new creation. He is denying, in other words, the age to come. What the disciples actually saw was not just their beloved master alive again, but they saw him in that new resurrection body. It's such a glorious thing, that resurrection body, that I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and just read your description of what will be your body one day if you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a real Christian. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. Now, fasten your seatbelt. This is your future. The body that is sown is perishable. Oh, we know that. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. I've just been in hospital for three days of tests. I had my blood pressure taken 3,245 times. And so much blood from me, I'm surprised I can stand here. (laughs) But certainly I know that when the time comes, my body will be sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. One of the things that paragraph does is to take away a false sort of spiritual view of the future. You know, the silly cartoons you see of Christians sitting on a cloud in heaven playing a harp or asking Peter if they may come in. Of course, the future is going to be like nothing at all. It will be a new heaven and a new earth, God dwelling amongst his people, all of us in these glorified bodies. It will be something real substantial and not flimsy and uh, like those ridiculous pictures. Well, of course, we can't imagine what it will be like, but that's what we're told, and it's a great future. So that's the future. What the disciples saw was a promise of the age to come, a promise of their future, a promise of the world's future that of all those who put their trust in Christ, and that must now be billions and billions of people. Now let's look at present life, and I want you, if you've got your Bible open, to turn to chapter 5, verse 24. If I said fasten your seatbelt earlier, I really mean it now, because this is one of the most extraordinary verses in the whole of the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking, verily, verily, I tell you, John 5, 24, if your next door neighbor is in the Old Testament, just nudge them and bring them into the New Testament, will you? John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, has the life of the world to come. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? They will not be judged. That seems amazing. No judgment. But they've crossed over already from death to life. This is life in the present. I would almost reread it, but time doesn't allow that. We're not going to be judged. That's amazingly good news. We've crossed from death to life. And the gift of eternal life is a taste of the age to come. And when you have that in your life, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, of course, then you know that judgment is past and you have the promise of a great future. This is the first installment of the future, and it means no condemnation. Um, A recent commentator on John's Gospel has said that the two mountain peaks in the New Testament are Romans and John's Gospel. I think when I was a young Christian, 
Most Reformed Christians thought of Romans as being the only mountain peak. I want to tell you, especially if you're a theological student, that there are two great mountain peaks in the New Testament, and just as important as Romans, not more important, but just as important is John's Gospel. And both of them tell you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, there will be no condemnation. Flip back one page to John chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18. Chapter 3, verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Isn't that a magnificent statement? To save the world. It's not a narrow ambition. If God sent his Son into the world, it was to do a massive task. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. No condemnation is in Romans 8, but it's also in John 3 and John 5. So John and the Apostle Paul agree When you're in Christ, a new creation has taken place. Uh, Just turn right back to the beginning. I, I didn't mean to say this, but it's so important. I'd like you to look at the beginning of John's Gospel. I think once I got this clear, I never... Well, I saw John in a completely new light. Look at those first words in the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. That is, God's agent in making this most beautiful world was Jesus Christ. I I find that something almost too big for my mind to take in. This last fortnight I've been on a lovely holiday in the country, being a a town mouse. It's quite nice to breathe the fresh air of the country, and I marveled afresh at the new spring life all around me. And it's good to remind ourselves, isn't it, otherwise we sometimes become too religious, that all this natural life around us is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was God's agent in the creation, and by him all things were made. But notice how he goes on in verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. Now those are salvation words. So he's not only the agent of creation... He's the agent of the salvation of mankind, all mankind, notice verse 4. He's concerned for everybody. And therefore, he's the agent in the new creation. But it's not plain sailing. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, so something has happened to the world. It's gone back into darkness and ignorance, and the darkness has not overcome it, not mastered it. Now, if you put those two together, it's quite remarkable. The same wisdom and the same almighty power that made this great natural world of ours come into existence. I don't know how you can look at this beautiful world and these wonderful documentaries we see. To me, it's always a great shame that David Attenborough claims to be an unbeliever. How can he give these documentaries all these beautiful things in the world and say he doesn't believe in the maker of them? So the Almighty God, whose wisdom and power made this created order, the same Almighty power and the same infinite wisdom is behind his program for the salvation of the world. It doesn't mean, of course, that everybody's going to be saved or less. The world is in darkness and the world is in rebellion. The world hates God and many refuse. But nevertheless, that is God's purpose. 
And it's mightily encouraged me to feel that it's not just a few who are going to be saved. The same power, the same wisdom that made this natural world is going to make the spiritual world, the eternal world, the heavenly world for us now and in the future. So God is building a new humanity. That's what we're doing, by the way, in church. We're not building a religion. So many people think that we're just in the business of religion, wanting to build up our church and build up our denomination or whatever it may be. When we're doing evangelism, when we're pastoring people, when we're carrying out the real life of the Christian church, we're not building up a bigger church. We're building up a new humanity. We're building up the new world, the only world that there's going to be in the long distant future. Seems an unbelievable and wonderful thing, but so it is. Now, in my last minutes, I want to give you the signs of this life, not so much in the individual. I'm sure we often think about that. But I want to to tell you very briefly as I finish about the signs of eternal life, the signs of resurrection life in the local church. I'm going to mention three. And I'm going to take them from the great I am's in the Gospel of John. Very simple. First, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Incidentally, it's very important to realize that every yes in John has a no attached. You hear on the radio many religious things said, positive things said, But when it comes to Christianity, the positive also has the negative. He says, I'm the way to life, and it's open for all to come, but it's the only way. There's no other way. There's no other bridge across the river. So Jesus was an evangelist, and John, the writer of the gospel, is an evangelist. And therefore, a local church that has life will be an evangelistic church. I've been a part, I was a pastor for many years, and I find it often that evangelism slips away from our priorities because it's so hard to do, isn't it? Uh, Daff was telling me of his hearing John Chapman preach for the first time, and uh, John was a very humorous man, a great evangelist. Talking about the Christian life, he said the first 50 years are the hardest. In other words, it's not always easy to be a Christian. But nevertheless... That's what we're inviting people to, this best of all lives, even though it is often tough. And the only way into it is through Jesus Christ. So the first mark of a local church in which the life of God is active is reaching out to other people. Concern not just for ourselves, but to those outside who don't know. And there are so many, so many. Secondly, I am the light of the world. That's a glorious phrase, isn't it? That is, I want you to come out of darkness into glorious light and to know the truth. So a local church that has life is a local church that has knowledge. It has understanding. It has a teaching ministry, not just from the pulpit, but right down to the tiny tots. Never underrate the under-eights. Sunday school for the under-eights doesn't need to be playtime. They can be taught too. A church with real life in it, God's life, is a church where everyone is thinking, studying, reading if that's possible for them, 
understanding, trying to understand more, hungry to learn. That's what God lives mean. It touches not only the heart, but the mind. An evangelistic church, an understanding, knowledgeable teaching church. Third mark, I am the resurrection and the life. A church where God is working by his life, the life of Christ and the Holy Spirit, is a church that deals with the real problems which politics can't. I'd been on holiday and my friends had uh, just been to a funeral of a young man who'd committed suicide in his early 20s. And lying on the table in the sitting room was the service sheet. My hostess is a lady who's particularly outspoken. And she simply said to me, that service was full of lies. I looked at the service sheet when I was on my own And the reading was this statement expounded. I don't know where it comes from. Death is nothing at all. The whole service was a service of denial. Denial that the tragedy happened. Denial that it really mattered. Denial that death actually was a tragedy. Now, I understand. I mean, the pain must have been so great, mustn't it? So instead of facing the thing, everybody had turned away and sung hymns like Jerusalem and, yes, I think they even sung Great Is Their Faithfulness, all in the face of a young man who'd hanged himself and was not a Christian in any sense or form. That's a kind of sentimentality. It's just turning away from reality, isn't it? Of course, we can't bear very much reality. A real church is a church that is not shallow, which tackles the real issues that people don't like to talk about, can be rather embarrassing, but have to be faced sooner or later. Suffering, temptation, trials. An evangelistic church, a knowledgeable church where people love to talk about these things and debate them and discuss them and persuade them, people of them. Thirdly, a church that tackles the real issues, the tough issues. And of course, I'm the good shepherd. We haven't time to get into that. But that means it'll be a pastoral church where people are looked after, people are loved, people are known. I was converted at the age of about 15 or 16. And I began to realize that the church we went to, my mother and father were wonderful people. They were God-fearing people. And the parish church where we lived, we went to every Sunday. I can remember it still. My brother and I, father and mother, going down to St. John's Subcastro in Lewis. It's now, by the way, a live church. But I realized in my late teens that what we were going to on Sunday was not a live church, but a dying church. In fact, a dead church. There was no evangelism. It was assumed that everybody was a Christian. Nobody nobody seems to care about the outsider. It was a church without any teaching. The sermon was of minimal importance. It never stirred your mind. It never made you think. We knew nothing. I find that such a tragedy. When I was a rector in the city, I found this uh, so common 
men of great ability who were completely ignorant of the things of God. I'm not ashamed of this little anecdote, I tell you, because actually I blushed. But I was at a big reception in the city, and one of these rather important men came up to me. He knew that I was a minister. And he said, Mr. Lucas, um, you know, I'm an agnostic. He was proud of it. I looked at this pompous man, <laughs> and I thought, what a fool you are. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not proud of this, because I oughtn't to have said it. Though in some ways, I'm glad I did. I said, you know, there's another word like agnostic which has exactly the same root in English, and that is ignoramus. <laughs> I said, do you think you're one of those? And then when I said that, I thought, oh, Dick, you have not know to have said that. But uh, it didn't matter. He laughed, but moved away. <laughs> a man of great ability, a man who probably knew his own job inside out, prosperous man, but a fool. The man who says there is no God in the Bible is a fool. St. John's Castro, to which my mother and father and we two boys went, no knowledge of God at all. People were completely ignorant. In church, knowing nothing. I am the resurrection and life. Well, they died without hope because no one had given them any hope. No one knew what to tell them as they found themselves, as I do today, in the departure lounge, waiting for the call to board the aircraft. We need to know, don't we, what's ahead of us and to be able to face it. But St. John Subcastro told us nothing. And, of course, nobody cared for us. There was no shepherding and no pastoral work. May God in this next 20 years make your church full of life as John's gospel is full of life looking to the outsider to bring them the glorious knowledge of the gospel building them up in the great truths of Jesus Christ giving them hope as they face the future even death itself and caring for all these sheep lambs that they may find fullness of life in Christ in this world and in the world to come. Let's pray. I am come that they might have life and they might have it to the full. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that 20 years ago this foundation was laid and life in Christ was proclaimed. Thank you for all those who come out of darkness into glorious light. Thank you for those who came to the end of life and had hope for the future. Thank you for all those who were cared for, physically, mentally, spiritually. As we look into the future, we ask that Jesus Christ the King may reign here and that we may be obedient, loving, and dependent followers of him. How we love him today, may he guide us into the future. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.